0: This is a Jewish TV channel presentation. Welcome to Talking Point, where controversial subjects are brought into sharp focus. Conversations with JTVC show host, Laura Kessler, comes up next.
1: Welcome to Talking Point, I'm Laura Kessler. For most of us, the world changed permanently after October 7th, but for some of us, it only exaggerated what we already knew and feared on steroids. A month after the biggest massacre of Jews since the Holocaust, Israelis and Jews worldwide are still reeling after the eerily well-choreographed one-two sucker punch of the Hamas massacre, followed by an even more choreographed PR propaganda war throughout the diaspora. Seemingly, all the actors had their places backstage ready for showtime. Food and resources were stashed in underground tunnels ready for Hamas and their hostages, instead of aid going to the people of Gaza. Media entities were ready to believe any and all reports from Hamas as fact. Professional signs were printed, ready for professional protesters to appear at precisely the right time, set to catchy, rhythmic cheers accompanied by professional drummers. Meanwhile, stashes of kefias, Palestinian headdresses, magically appeared as a free gift and door prize for every Western useful idiot who showed up intersectionality is a peculiar thing in a world where mansplaining splaining, and heterosplaining and the like are understood to be vile things somehow it's okay to tell the Jews who they are and define for them what victimization is in a world that increasingly divides people into binaries and preferred intersectionalities Jews are especially unique And we fit about as well as a square peg in a round hole into this current matrix, which is ironic because we are, in many ways, the original intersectionalists. And my guest today is someone who embodies Jewish intersectionality better than almost anyone I know. Hen Nazik is an award-winning Israeli author, a writer, and a speaker who has inspired thousands around the world with his story for well over a decade. Hen was named one of Algemeiner's top 100 people positively influencing Jewish life multiple times. The top 50 online pro-Israel influencers, top 50 LGBTQ+ influencers, and the Committee for Accuracy in Middle East Reporting and Analysis chose him to be its Portrait and Courage Award laureate. He's the author of the best-selling book *The Wrong Kind of Jew*, released last year. And he's a prominent digital influencer with over 100 million users interacting and engaging with his content. His Instagram alone has a higher engagement rate than Kim Kardashian, Nike, and Cristiano Ronaldo combined. He's authored numerous viral campaigns that you've probably heard of, like the hashtag JewishPrivilege campaign, hashtag JewishLooking, where thousands of Jews celebrated their diversity and told their truth. In 2019, Penn co-founded the Tel Aviv Institute, a nonprofit dedicated to using data-driven social media strategies to advocate for the Jewish people. And we'll be talking about that much more. His award-winning articles have been published in LA Times, Newsweek, NBC, and everywhere. And he's built relationships that have changed hearts and minds, simply by showing up with strength, but also kindness. He's a rare intergenerational voice, and I'm so honored to have him with us today. Welcome, Hen. How are you doing?
0: Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm okay. I'm okay. You know, I've been through so many wars and, and survived terror attack when I was young, and I served in the Army for five years. I, I was in the West Bank. I was in the Gaza border. I've, I've seen a lot of things in my life, but I've never seen what, we're, what we've what we seen in three weeks ago, and... and uh, and what is still unfolding today.
1: How have you personally been affected by the last couple weeks?
0: I've, um, I haven't had much sleep. Um, I've been working nonstop around the clock, um, doing everything I can to share our message to with the world, uh, to give Jewish people the language to use, um, uh, because I've been so used to violence against israelis and anti-semitism i've been doing it for over a decade now um i think it was um instinctive for me to just come up and and say the words that everyone wanted and support um people with the right messaging um and that's what i've been focusing on and you know creating content for social media writing articles doing interviews i have dozens of interviews every day, um, helping other Jewish social media influencers, uh, it's probably a very important new front that we are facing.
1: Definitely. And I'm. I just can you speak a little bit about the local UK climate? I know you're there in London, and we've seen some really horrific things.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, I've, I've also i 've also been speaker on college campuses for a long time. I lived in America for a few years now I live in london I do travel to America a lot, but I do see this uh, everything that starts in London always ends up in America and this time, I think situation is really bad on both continents um, in the u k we 're seeing uh, violence against jews we 're seeing chants uh, for violence against Jews in the streets. Uh, over one hundred and fifty thousand people came out. To protest against Israel, um, unprecedented numbers—not even for Ukraine or for any other war in the world or conflict—didn't bring so much anger out of people and so much thirst for violence as we see now uh, in London and and we're seeing it on campuses in America. We're seeing it on campuses in the UK. I think it's a very terrifying time, and it's not only that it was the worst violence we've seen in Israel. Um, I think we are about to see the worst violence against Jews around the world, and it's already unfolding.
1: It definitely is. I think back to when I lived in London. I lived in a very multicultural neighborhood that um, really had a, a dominant Muslim population. Um, you know, Bayswater and Notting Hill, and I, d- I just can't imagine what it's like right now. It's just not not the London I knew. Um, nowhere is what I knew. Um, yeah. I want to back. I want to back up just a little bit. Your personal biography is so integral to your work and for people to understand, and especially uh, when it comes to people understanding that Jews are not a monolith. Can you just give us a little bit about your background, uh, your family, and how you came to do this work, just to put it into perspective?
0: Absolutely. Uh, my family came to, um, to Israel from, uh, from two countries, from Iraq and Tunisia. My family from my mother's side, my mom. Uh, they came to Israel from Iraq. In Iraq, there were 150,000 Jews. Um, they were there were actually the two third of Baghdad um, were Jewish. Uh, and in 1941, everything changed for them when uh, the Farhud happened. Those two days of violence attacks against Jews that were, while well, incited by Nazis, were carried out by Iraqi um, officers and and Arabs in Iraq, um, in which thousands of Jews were injured. Hundreds were killed. My grandmother witnessed her best friend, a teenage girl, being raped in the streets and then murdered. Um, mm-hmm. This sort of violence that we saw in in October seventh in Israel is nothing new. I spoke to my grandmother, and she says that it reminded her of the Farhud. It reminded her of those violent days against the Jews of Iraq. Um, that still she carries this trauma with her. It's not just trauma in the past. You know, it's not just um, something that happened and just. Um, disappear they, they should still have to face it every time. There's a cycle of violence. Uh, cycle. I mean, we know that the violence is coming always from one side, and then Israel has to protect itself. Um, and then in 1951, the Iraqi government actually issued um, a, a warrant, a, a, a decision. The government that the government of Iraq accepted this decision to um, to provide to give every Iraqi Jew um, the um, the ability to Revoke their or their citizenship, basically giving up their citizenship, it was a, a very gentle um, offer to leave the country and that 's why um, from one hundred and sixty thousand people today there 's not even one Jewish person living in iraq and it 's uh, it's what, it's what, what is by definition ethnic cleansing I hear this war being weaponized against Israel today. I hear many wars being weaponized against Israel today. every atrocity that we faced in throughout history history has been turned against us and used against us in a victim-blaming way that is unprecedented to any other community, but it's been done to us because part of the terrorism that we're facing is also psychological terrorism. And instead of letting us mourn our deaths, we have to continuously defend ourselves and, and defend our, our humanity, our dignity, and defend our history. Um, at the same time, when my grandparents came to Israel from Iraq, my grandparents from my, my father's side came to Israel from Tunisia, uh, the, my last name Mazig comes from the Amazig. Amazigh are the indigenous population to North Africa. Um, about 5,000 of the tribe members were uh, were Jewish. Um, uh, people like with the last name like Mazig, Amazig, um, Amzaleg, uh, Mazug are all part of the tribes that um, faced very similar uh, persecution. And in 1951, my grandparents from Tunisia. Um, just went on a boat um, and escaped Tunisia after years of oppression and and um, living as second class citizens. And just a reminder to everyone: I think when the um, when my grandparents had to leave Iraq and Tunisia, no other country has offered them a refuge. The reason that I'm alive and that my parents are alive was there. There were not. There wasn't anywhere else for them to go. If there wasn't Israel my grandparents, my parents, um, I would not be alive. And that's why this anti-Israel, anti-Zionist chants that I'm hearing in the streets feels very much like a death threat to me.
1: Mm-hmm. And this is one of the things that makes me so crazy, Hen, because why do people completely ignore the 850,000 Jewish refugees that were ethnic-cleansed from Arab lands, and they only focus on the 700 uh, Palestinians. At the time, it was supposed to be a swap, kind of like India and Pakistan, except one side squatted and the other side didn't. It's, it's so hard to get this across. And originally, that's, that was one of the things I wanted to focus on today, but obviously, we're having a different type of interview. How do you get that across to people? It seems like they just don't want to hear it.
0: Yeah, yeah it is so hard. And I mean, i my, most of my, my adult life um, countering this and, and trying to um, raise awareness and connect to people um, humanity um, and it's very sad to see that while on the Israeli side we have to work so hard to convince people um, the anti-Israel side doesn't really need much work um, and I think a lot of it comes from this narrative that has been built uh, around Israel that Israel is this white colonial power in the Middle East that is foreign to the Middle East, um, erasing thousands of years of history, of Jewish history in this land. Um, And actually, instead of seeing the Middle East for what it is, having a one big Arab empire that controls it, with 22 Arab countries, and they literally have an Arab League, um, and and recognizing that this is the imperial force, and Israel is actually a nation-state this narrative has been flipped. Everything has been flipped. I feel like we're living in the in the upside down. People are just um, rewriting history, rewriting the reality. Um, and the way that I that I try to counter it is by meeting people where they're at. Um, I know that if I try and convince people that um, you know the Israeli army is the most moral army in the world. I know that. But I think that people that are not Jewish will not will not accept it. And they would want to see Two sides, and it's again, it's very disheartening to think that people are using our bodies as pawns, and they see this war as some game or, or uh, you know, a football match that they are cheering for one team. Um, and while they cheered for Israel on the first day because we were victimized, now they've shifted to turn to the Palestinians because Hamas knows exactly what they're doing. The reason that they are inflating those numbers of casualties by hundreds percent. Um, I mean, much more than multiplying it uh, is because they know that uh, Western people are very, um, most of them are not very uh, uh, sensitive to anything else. And that would be the way to hook them emotionally. So it's about addressing people's emotions and, and try and meet them where they're at and having the conversation in a way that will convince them to, um, to support us.
1: Well, we live in a time and era in the post digital revolution where numbers are king, but numbers can be faked and numbers can be kind of meaningless, just like any statistic that can be manipulated. Um, and I mean, the numbers that I think count is there are fewer Jews today than there were before the Holocaust. We're still feeling the effects of genocide. We have around 16 million worldwide, and there are billions of them you know there's no way we can win a numbers game um and that that's kind of why i really uh, go to ira the, the definition of anti-semitism and title six and other things i'm curious where you stand on that
0: yeah i think it's important it's a, it's an important um framework to understanding anti-semitism that really um explains it in a uh, in a good way but I'm not delusional uh, to think that you know every random Joe in the street would understand what IRA is and would want to um, would want to uh, make sure that their um, government or whatever would would adopt it. Um, I think that people have very little um, regard to Jewish lives and, and to our safety, just like they have too many other issues. I mean, if you look at Black Lives Matter, it took them so long to get. Um, uh, and there are far many more um, members of the black community than there are of the Jewish community in America. And yet it took them so long to raise awareness to racism in America. Um, and I think that the Jewish community is, is also is challenged in, in uh, raising awareness to anti-Semitism. The, um, the, the times that I think people realized it was when there was synagogue shooting. It's only when Jews are being murdered um, in our um, holiest places where people recognize the the severity of anti-Semitism. Um, and it's very unfortunate. But I think we just, we have to re- redirect. And I think that a lot of the work that the Jewish community and Jewish communal organizations have done in recent years has proven itself to be ineffective. I mean, I know that millions, maybe billions of dollars have been invested into work on college campuses and work on promoting anti-Semitism awareness. And all of, those, all of this work, has, uh, evidently in the last three weeks, has been um, throwing good money off to bed. We haven't achieved anything. Um, and that's really important, I think, for us as a community to, um, to make a reckoning and understand that we have to reshift and, and rethink uh, our efforts.
1: I really love the work that you do with Tel Aviv Institute, and I think it's vital. Everybody knows what you're doing and why you're doing it. Can you talk a little bit about that and some of your success stories and the services that you guys provide?
0: Absolutely. So the Tel Aviv Institute was um, an, uh, a child of, of the thought that uh, myself, together with Dr. Ron Katz, who's an expert on rhetoric and propaganda from UC Berkeley, um, and the late Mark Bloom uh, came up with, and we were, uh, Mark, Mark Bloom was a philanthropist from Seattle, and the three of us um, developed the idea of um, fighting anti online. So the first part was to research, and we started analyzing hate speech. And we found that 95% of online hate speech against Jews is actually coded. It's using coded language language. Um, Sometimes it's anti-Zionism that is hiding anti-Semitism, as we know. It's very popular. But all of those um, media giants were not able to recognize anti-Semitism because it was so coded. Um, and we saw that a lot of anti-Semitism was uh, coming from um, big influencers. Um, there's um, power multipliers. You know, The first ones that come to mind are probably um, Gigi and Bella Hadid, those two supermodels with more followers mm-hmm. than there are Jews. Um, even multiplied by 10, there aren't um, enough uh, Jews to be uh, as big as, as B- Gigi and Bella's uh, followers. Um, and they are spreading constantly misinformation and one-sided view of the conflict and very dangerous rhetoric around Israel and around Jewish community that we found leads to violence. So if you look at uh, Muncie and if you look at the uh, the Jersey, uh, New Jersey um, kosher supermarket market shooting, uh, or, or at uh, any of the violence that we've seen in recent years, the antisemitic uh, horrific acts of, of violence—they all started somewhere online. The the um, the guy that was committing the crime, the murderer in uh, in Muncie, actually posted that he was uh, looking for for Zionists, and and the uh, uh, the shooter in the in New Jersey was um, one of them was looking for uh, um, Zionist synagogues online. So all of this has really reaffirmed the notion that all of this hate speech online does not stay online and it always goes down to, to the street. What starts online doesn't end there. And we, we realize that we have to change it. And the way to change it is by using those power multipliers, um, the, the big social media influencers, um, not the two big ones, but and I'll explain why in a second, but the ones that are um, up to a million followers, those are the people that we work with. We bring them together and we give them support. Uh, we're looking for Jewish ones um, because, again, I think the last three weeks has proven to us that the Jewish community has to be the ones leading the effort for ourselves because the non-Jewish world, while many are sympathetic, um, we can't count on anyone else to fight for us. We have to fight ourselves and, and have the world joining us and supporting us. Um, so, yeah, I, I think we, we started working with those influencers. And we originally started working with a few big influencers, and we realized that working with people that have a few million followers um, doesn't mean that your content would reach a few million people because there's things thing that is called engagement. So you might have a million followers, but only a thousand people would see your post. Um, and the more followers you have, the less percentage uh, of them would actually view your posts on social media. Um, and we have redirected. It was a lot of work. I mean, it's been four years that we've been perfecting what we're doing. Um, and we also realized that big influencers are not as authentic as um, smaller influencers. So we reached out to a few of the Jewish influencers with up to a million followers Uh, and we started creating those uh, conferences where we call them Jews Talk Justice. Uh, It's a laboratory where they come for three days to Tel Aviv, and we just give them a crash course on history of of Jews in Israel, anti-Semitism, diversity of speakers from um, Arab Israelis, um, uh, Jewish human rights activists, and so on. And we're trying to find, you know, going back to my point in the beginning, we have to meet people where they're at. And to get people to be engaged in this cause, you have to find what moves them and what they care about and what are the set of values. Um, so that's what we, we look for in the television, in the work that we're doing. And now we have a network of over 100 influencers and we've been investing in them for a long time. It's not investing money because, I mean, it's not investing in a sense of. Paying them for doing that. That's why we're picking Jewish ones. It's the investment in time and energy, and making them feel that they have a safe space. And I want to tell you, the last three weeks, each and every one of them have been posting about Israel and about anti-Semitism. They've been speaking up. They've been so vocal. And I really think that a lot of the reason that the violence in in the streets in America and New York, while it is big, but it's not in the levels of what we've seen in May 2021 when we didn't have anyone to speak up, Um, I think that Mm -hmm. it's still maintainable and I think it's a lot because of those brave Jewish voices um, that have been speaking up and the more people speak up, the more it's becoming easier for other people to speak up and I'm really proud of the Jewish community and how vocal we've been the last three weeks.
1: That's amazing. I think what you're doing with Tel Aviv Institute is just so important. And you're really bridging the gap of leadership between generations in precisely the way that we need. So I think that's wonderful. I'm curious how many, I love that you distinguish between engagement versus numbers, because that's what's really authentic. And how much higher is the level of actual engagement for the people under uh, 2 million, generally?
0: Yeah, so if, so, um, we see that over one million engagement would be the average engagement would be um, around four to three percent, um, and people up to seven hundred fifty thousand followers, the engagement would be between six and seven percent, um, and up to half a million followers, um, around eight percent or nine percent. Uh, my engagement is um, is around twelve point five percent. It's very high, but I have one hundred and eighty thousand followers. Um, but way more people would be exposed to my post than a lot of those inferences with 2 million followers. Um, So that's a a very important realization we had, but we actually used it from a few PR firms that we worked with that advised us um, to take this route that proven itself to be much more effective.
1: It's fascinating. Less is definitely more. Um, And in, in terms of persuasive talking points, if you will, what are you emphasizing the most that you find helps the most? Because I think it feels so overwhelming. There's a lot of people, average people, trying to do something, trying to help online, and w- where should they start if if average people are trying to help as well?
0: Yeah. So I mean, my my rule of thumb is to always be um, always be mindful that whatever you're posting is not just um, It's not just going to your friends, that other people might see it as well. Uh, Whenever you're arguing with someone online, other people are going to see it. And our goal is not to convince those that are convinced already, and it's not to convince people that um, are already on our side or our community. We want to reach outside of our community. Uh, And the way to do it, the effective way, is by, uh, by leading with kindness and try and be as kind as you can, even when you're angry. And, oh, boy, am I angry on social media. I'm so angry, um, and and it's it's righteous anger. We should be angry. There's a lot of people out there that deserve every bit of um, uh, of the anger that we want to give them. But um, but it's not effective. And we found that when mm-hmm. um, bystanders are seeing conversations online, and they're seeing one side that is either swearing or um, uh, or dehumanizing the other side, or uh, or you know responding in a way that is aggressive it would often turn people away, people that are on the fence, and would actually make them support the other side. So my recommendation, and that's the recommendation I give to all the influencers that we work with, is that we always try and lead with kindness uh, as hard as it is, and we try to educate people. Uh, when people don't recognize your humanity, you just don't engage with them. Um, don't get into arguments with people that um, are incredibly anti-Semitic, unless you have a point to make that, you know, you can share it with others, or unless um, it's a big account that you want to comment there because you hope that the people that are following them would see your comment and would think, wait, you know, this is a good point. Maybe I should think about it. Um, so when I, when I respond to Rashida's lab or AOC and are not known for their love to Israel, let's put it this way. Um, I, I always, I'm always mindful of uh, how I'm responding to them and hoping that their followers would look at it and in at my comment and my response and would, think to themselves, um, maybe that's something that I should have, you know, re-examined or reconsider.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate that about you, and I feel like that relates to your humanitarian work you did when you were a member of the IDF. And, you know, you're very effective at crossing some of these typical barriers that a lot of people are afraid to cross, and you have those difficult but necessary family discussions. And sometimes we need to have it as Jews within ourselves. Um, and yeah. I, I really agree about leading with a compassionate way. And I think that's increasingly hard when we see, you know, certain people, the Peter Beinart, some of these other people that are not who we want representing us. And I have to mention, as I was preparing for this, I got to revisit some of your old work from a while ago that I'd forgotten about. And I found your open letter to Natalie Portman, which I just thought was excellent Um, and, you know, we think you've explained your process and strategy is, is kindness, but can you, can you take it a little deeper when it comes to getting our own people united and on board when sometimes we're part of the problem?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also important to remember, this is not just a problem the Jewish community faces. Um, many other minority communities have parts within those communities that, Advocate against the best interests of the community. Um, I see it as a as a gay person. I know that members within the LGBTQ community um, are often advocating against our best interests. I think the black community also have that. There's um, black voices that are um, against, um, you know, almost supporting racism in a way. Um, uh, we're seeing it with the feminist movement. There's some um, women that are against um, some of the ideas that the feminist movement is promoting. I mean, there's a fair amount of criticism, of course, but i 'm not speaking about criticism i 'm speaking about being completely against the civil rights of this community. I think the Jewish community is facing the same thing. There are um, voices within our community that are that are very um, very vocal and are not representing our community and I'm very personally i 'm very critical of the of the Israeli government. I have been for a long time, um, but my criticism has never pushed me to a place that I would Advocate against the existence of Israel, um, and I think most Jews uh, know that, and we know that um, no one, you know, no, I don't think any Jew would say that any criticism of Israel is uh, is anti-Semitism. But but we know that a few people of our community uh, within our community are are really challenging. And you know, I just I went back to reading um, uh, the Origins of Totalitarianism uh, by Hannah Arendt and. Uh, It it was written in 1951. I actually have the book with me. I'll I'll just read to you one part because I think it's so important. And uh, she writes there, um, acceptance by non-Jewish society was granted only as long as these few Jews were clearly distinguished exceptions from the Jewish masses. Jews who heard the strange compliment that they were exceptions, exceptional Jews, knew quite well it was this very ambiguity that they were Jews and yet presumably not like the rest of the Jews um, that opened doors of society to them. If they desired this kind of intercourse, they had to be and yet not to be like most Jews. Um, so I think that, that was really mm-hmm. what we're facing now. Not a lot has changed since 1951, yeah. unfortunately. And, and we're seeing you know, Jewish voices within our community that um, are willing to jeopardize the rest of us and, and to uh, uh, advocate against other Jews um, because they know that by being those exceptional Jews they would gain access into society so it's not as it was in Europe with the emancipation but um, but it's definitely very close to that um, and, and I think that the way to solve that um, that problem within our community is by speaking up. I think the more Jews speak up the more we show what these people are and the more fringe and marginalized mm-hmm. they become. Um, I think that if I look at our, I don't know, even five years ago, I think the situation was much more dire. And I think people um, felt, and specifically Jews, felt, uh, anti-Zionist Jews felt more uh, emboldened to speak about their, their anti-Israel sentiments um, than they are now. And I think the reason that we're seeing less Jews speaking out, there are still a fair amount of Jews, like Jewish recipes, but I think even Natalie Portman has been Comparing her to uh, comparing to her <laughs> work in in other conflicts, she's been very um, balanced with her uh, response, and I think mm-hmm. a lot of it is because um, it's because there's so many Jewish voices speaking up. The more of us speak up, the more they become um, the visible minority that they are, um, and the more of us speak up, they they are really presented as who they truly are, which is French. Um, so I yeah, I really I think. What we can do as a community right now to support Israel, to support each other, to stand up to anti-Semitism, is is speaking up and, and it's being proud. Um, I'll, I'll give you a, just one quick story, but and I'm, I promise there's a, a point at the end. Um, but I, I learned how to swim this year. I never knew how to swim, but I decided to take a <laughs> course, and and my trainer was teaching me how to um, how to do the, the the movement in the water and. As I was doing them, he kept saying, you know, when you're in the water, the instinct um, when you don't know how to swim is to fold yourself in, is to fold your chest, is to close yourself down um, because you hope that this way you would you would not sink. Um, that's the instinct that we have. And he says, but that's really not what you should do if you want to float. Um, to float in the water, you have to open your chest. You have to be... Uh, in a very proud position because then you would actually float. Then the water would not get all around you and you would be able to rise up. And I think for us as a community, I was thinking mm-hmm. about it in one of my classes, that uh, it, it's really instinctive to take down our mezuzah or to take off our kippah or to hide our star, uh, the jury star, Star of David necklace. Um, and, and it's just so, uh, it's so harmful to the fight against anti-Semitism, because once we are proud and once we speak up about who we are and once we go to the grocery store with our Star of David on and, and we put our kippah and we celebrate and partake in Jewish lives, no matter how hard it is and how how dangerous it is, I mean, with, within reason, of course, um, the more non-Jews see us as who we, as who we are and they see that All the innuendos and all the lies and all the propaganda about Jews that they have heard is false because we are human. We're fighting a campaign of dehumanization, and the only way to fight it is by all of us um, fighting to be human again and and speak up and not being ashamed and not hide ourselves.
1: I love that story about your swim instructor. That's really good. And, you know, it's the irony of, of Jews helping every other community to live proudly outside the closet and then uh, governments are telling us to stay home and basically hide. I want to just touch briefly on that. One of the most frustrating aspects of anti-Semitism and Israel phobia is that a lot of the people who should be our allies as liberal democracies are fighting against us and even their own interests. As you said, there's this rampant self abandonment that's sort of in vogue right now. What do you make of the LGBTQ plus communities and their overwhelming support for the Palestinian narrative over Israel and indifference. And, you know, it was actually from you, I want to add, that I learned that there are Arab countries that force members of the gay community to have gender reassignment surgery. Um, I mean, I, did, I I had not realized that before. We could almost talk a whole hour on that, you know, another time. But, I mean, I, how do you reconcile that?
0: Oh, um I, I can't reasonably... Um, make the case to why LGBTQ plus folks are supporting, um, regimes and and organizations that, um, would advocate to murder them and, and in a, in a heartbreak. Um, it's, it's very bizarre. Um, I, I think that some of it um, has to do with this campaign that we spoke about earlier, um, that has been launched against Israel for, for years now. Um, uh, and, and it is to make Israel into this white colonial force force in the Middle East. Um, people actually believe this lie that you know Israel 0.03 percent of the entire land of the Middle East is actually the problem, and that the seven million Jews that are living there are actually oppressing the one point something billion Arabs uh, Muslims that are living in <laughs> in the Middle East. It's like it's it's bizarre. Um, and, and if you it's look like at the numbers, it's like laughable
1: if it wasn't true.
0: <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. The world really turned upside down. Um, uh, and if you look at the numbers, I mean, uh, over ninety, I think only one percent of Palestinian society, according to Pew Research, actually thinks that uh, being gay is moral. Um, and as recent as September 2023, the, the the UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Work Agency. Uh, in Gaza asked um, their employees, they have 30,000 Palestinian employees in Gaza, and they asked them to sign um, a statement where they say that they respect gender equality and that they support the LGBTQ community. And every single organization in Gaza actually demanded that this statement would be scrapped, and that they would still be allowed to discriminate against gay people um, and against women um, and they sent a statement, the working, the working union in Gaza sent a statement saying that they uh, call on the UN leadership to respect their values uh, and common sense of the Islamic morality and not to spread such ideas as gender equality and, um, and LGBTQ rights. And yet, I was looking today at this uh, very successful uh, Instagram page with millions of followers called Gay Times. And their post was about how um, the queer struggle is actually the Palestinian struggle. I mean, the the insanity that it takes the the gym, you know the moral gymnastic uh, to to get to a point that as a queer person you think that you have anything to do with people that hate you. It's also so disrespectful. I, I'm sorry, but for someone that is. Trying to force their values on Palestinians. Have, you, have they asked Palestinians if it's okay for them to say that the Palestinian cause is a queer cause? Because I'm pretty sure that according to every research, the Palestinians would reject this support. And yet they're still out there uh, speaking about it. And, you know, it's thanks to a lot of voices like Judith Butler that said that Hamas is actually part of the progressive movement. Um, uh, and that's a scholar from New York. Um, and I, I really think that all of those uh thought leaders in the West that have completely lost their thoughts, um have have gone to a place that they would do anything to justify um anti Semitism and, and attacks on Israel. Um and yeah, I think that's that's how we reached this point.
1: And you mentioned the West and I wanted to ask you what you think of us here in America, what we're doing right or wrong and there's a lot of wrong. I mean we have the impact of the ethnic studies curriculum coming up. Israel Apartheid Week is an institution. Uh, People are finally speaking out against Students for Justice in Palestine and Jewish Voice for Peace, which for years people like us have been saying are hate groups. Um, What do you think, particularly in in the diaspora, what can we do? What Are are we doing anything right? (laughs) I'm not sure. Um, What what can we do better uh, from your, your perspective?
0: Yeah, do you really want to want me to tell you what I think about America right now? No, I'm kidding. Yes, yeah,
1: yeah, we we people need to hear it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I I really think that America um, America is great. Like I lived I lived in America. I lived in New York. I lived in Seattle. I think American people, by and large, are great. Um, and I do think that they have a lot of sincerity and and real um compassion to others. Um, but yeah, there there are. Now, parts of society that maybe are fringe right now. But the problem with fringe ideas is that whatever is fringe today and is not being handled and is not being addressed is going to be the main and the consensus tomorrow. And that's that's the big fear. And I think that for Americans um, that care about their country and care about the future of um, free societies and and liberty and all of the values that America is built on, uh, it's crucial that they would start speaking up against it everywhere. And uh, I've seen, um, we've seen a campaign today that is calling, um, that Jewish voices are posting, uh, pro-Israel Jewish voices are, are posting posts about uh, how they want, um, it's basically just a post that says, hide me. Um, and it's a call for non-Jews to support them. And I find it a bit problematic because I, mm-hmm. and I, I yeah. want to clarify that. I don't think we want Americans or British people or anyone to hide us. Uh, we don't want them to um, see us as victims. And I understand that this is the narrative that um, many in the West are comfortable with of Jews being victims. Um, but I think it's okay for them to be uncomfortable a bit with the idea that Jews can stand up to themse- for themselves, but also that we need their support. We can be very strong in the Middle East, and I know that the existence of Israel is the reason we still are alive and that a lot of Jewish communities are safe around the world right now, even if there are threats. Um, but with that in mind, we do need um, people to speak up. And you spoke about the ethnic um, uh, ethnic studies, and I think it's an example of something that Jews should have been a part of it, and we should have been, anti-Semitism should have been one idea that they explored. Um, but going back to this whole campaign of shifting what being Jewish is and associating Jews with power and turning us into this superhuman villains that have secret societies that control the world, Um, people actually fall into this protocol, the protocols of the elders of Zionist ideas um, that, uh, you know, a lot of us thought have passed away, or at least it's only crazy people would believe it, but it's a lot of people really believe it. Maybe not in the name, but they would believe the concept that Jews actually um, are all powerful. And and it's also dehumanizing, right? right? The, to think that to, to think that a community is superhuman um, doesn't is not a good thing. It's uh, uh it's it's still a form of dehumanization. Um, so I think the Jewish community has to start uh, in America is to have conversations, tough conversations with other communities, and, and not to come from a place of all this nonsense idea. Personally, I think it's nonsense, the idea of allyship. Um, you know, allyship is, uh, is when you help someone because you want, want them to help you back. Um, but I think Jews have, for a long time in, for, in America, forever, um, has been standing up for what is right. And we always have the moral campus, and we always have the uh, the notion uh, uh, of what what is what needs to be done and what needs to be supported, um, to improve the world, not for ourselves, but to for everyone else. Um, and I think we need to have those conversations with other communities, not from a place of we helped you now helped us, but more of, w- w- you need to realize that this is harming a minority community. This is who the Jewish community is uh, to speak about how diverse the Jewish community is. And even if we lived in Europe for a few hundred of years, doesn't mean that we're European. We were, it was made clear by Hitler that Jews were not European. Um, but, but yeah, exactly. I, think it's, I think we can make a difference. I think we can make a, a change um, in America and in around the world by, by not being afraid, by speaking up and by being proud of our heritage and our history and not being ashamed to demand some justice.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And I know we're running out of time. Do you have time for a quick lightning round before you go to your next? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, actually. Okay, and then um, tell tell people your website again um, and how they can support your work.
0: Sure. Um, So our website is tlvi.org, tlvi.org, and there's a well. Right now, if you go to this website, you will see ways to support Israel. Uh, it was very important for me. I see a lot of Jewish organizations fundraising for their own work right now, um, and for me it's really important that we support Israel and, and the needs on the ground. So that's what we're, um, we're putting up there. Um, there's also a way to donate to TLVI, and if, if you support Israel already and you want to do something for the work on social media, which is another important front, um, then you can find um, ways to donate to, uh, to our work there as well. Uh, and you can follow me on Han Mazig, uh, um on Instagram, um, Twitter, uh, every social media platform.
1: Great. And we'll put, we'll put that and the other stuff on our website along with you. So we have a, a little lightning round. We ask
0: everybody, I'll
1: kind of put them together, why are you proud to be a Jew? And who are your Jewish role models?
0: Mm. Um, I'm proud to be a Jew because... Being Jewish is having a family everywhere I go. It's been part of a tribe, part of an amazing group of people that has spun through generations and times and lands and still maintain our identity, still knows who we are. Um, and no matter how hard they have tried to erase us, we're still here. So for me, being Jewish in life is a miracle. That's
1: what I love about it. Mm-hmm. And here's your Jewish role model.
0: Oh, uh, Jewish role model. Um, my grandmother. Uh, mm-hmm. She's she's the one person. I mean, with all of the intellectuals, and I can say Herzl and um, Hannah Erland and so many other philosophers, Immanuel and mm-hmm. uh, so many others. But for me, the number one is my grandmother and and my mother. But my grandmother has gone through so much for um, for us uh, to be here. So she's really she really is a role model that I draw a lot of inspiration and power from her.
1: Yeah. What concerns you most about the present moment in relation to the Jewish people? And what makes you really mad? I think I can guess the second one. <laughs>
0: um, I think that uh, uh, what makes me concerned is that Jewish people are, um, that are afraid for their, um, for their safety are taking the route of hiding. Um, that's, really not something we should do we should be more proud and more and you spoke about i spoke about why this is so important for me um and, and in regards to people that anger me is that there's jews out there that i know that are zionists and i know that support israel but they're not speaking up and they're hiding um uh, it's not out of fear but it's more of um, out of the need to be accepted um and that these are the people you know i can i can understand if, uh, I, not that i can understand but i feel like Jews that are anti-Israel are so far off, and I'm not even going to try and engage with them. But Jews that are pro-Israel and are Zionists and and support Israel and are not able to peep a word publicly about it, um, those are Mm -hmm. the ones that I really am upset with.
1: The silent majority, absolutely. And lastly, what's your outlook on the future? Are you hopeful?
0: Oh, I'm so hopeful. I'm seeing young Jews speaking up. I'm seeing young, cool Jews that um, would otherwise not have community are coming up. And I think there's so many um, hopeful uh, um, things that I'm seeing movement with social media. Um, And there's a lot of bad, of course, but there's a lot of good stuff coming out of there. And I think this communities of Jews that are becoming more proud of their identity and speaking up is really, really um, promising uh, for the future of our community.
1: Henna Zieg, thank you so much for spending time with us and for all the innovative work you're doing online, bridging generations and cultures. I think that you are exactly the type of leadership we need now. And although we didn't get to talk about your book or the Mizrahi Manifesto, I just want to say you are definitely the right kind of Jew. And I hope you'll come back and talk to us again soon.
0: Thank you so much. Yeah, I would love to come back when... Hopefully when there will be peace and our hostages would be back home safely, um, we could have a, a, a deeper, longer conversation. Um, and until then, we can just pray for them for their safe return.
1: Amen. Well, that's it for this special edition of Talking Point. Be sure to join us on the brand new BIPACT channel for bipartisan action against anti-Semitism, as well as our brand new podcast, which is coming out this week. Follow us on social media, sign up for the newsletter, and if you'd like to make a donation to help this work or learn how to sponsor an episode or perhaps even volunteer, we're recruiting interns and volunteers of all ages, please give us an email at info at jtvc.org or visit our website. For Jewish TV Channel, I'm Laura Kessler. Stay safe and show your pride.
0: Thank you for listening to talking point on jewish tv channel the voice of jewish communities worldwide we look forward to seeing you again